I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Uh, Michael McClure was born in the Midwest during the Depression and grew up in Seattle immersed in an American wilderness ethic that, of course, extends back to Thoreau and Emerson. He moved to San Francisco as a young man and apprenticed himself to Robert Duncan, a radiating core at the city's emerging poetry renaissance. And he hit stride at the landmark Six Poets at the Six Gallery reading in October 1955, the first announcement of the East and West Coast beat axis and a watershed in American culture. Reading his poem for the death of a hundred whales, which commemorated an act of wanton slaughter by 79 bored American GIs stationed at a NATO base in Iceland, he declared his dominant concern with the animal consciousness in man rendered dormant by industrialization. Embracing the energizing potential of psychotropics, this will become his constant refrain. When a man does not admit that he is an animal, He is less than an animal, not more, but less. To this end, Michael argues that the work of the Beat Generation comprises a literary wing of the modern green movement, moving far beyond the traditional comforts of anthropomorphism. Accordingly, his mammalian poetics engages with the Dionysian, the ruthless, and a cannibalistic pulse of nature, as well as its noble, gentle, and cooperative strains. In the next decade, Michael in part catalyzed the beat transition to yippie and hippie, basing himself in Haight-Ashbury and performing Blakean poetic melodies on his auto harp, most notably alongside Allen Ginsberg and Gary Snyder at the 1967 Human Being in Golden Gate Park. During this period, he studied the Hell's Angels at close quarters, fascinated by notions of charismatic allegiance and destructive power, co-wrote the lyrics for Janis Joplin's seminal, Oh Lord, Won't You Buy Me a Mercedes-Benz, and made an explosive contribution to American theater with plays such as Josephine the Mouse Singer and The Beard, which were shut down by the LA police for a record run of 14 nights. Now through these decades, he always seemed to be at the center of what his fellow poet Gary Snyder calls the great subculture, pulling energies exuberantly towards him rather than slavishly following fads. Indeed, in Big Sur, Jack Kerouac dramatizes Michael as, quote, the handsome but faintly decadent Rambo-type personality, Pat McClear, with a goddamn hawk on his shoulder. 
and sings of his long erotic work Dark Brown which he calls the most fantastic poem in America. Having previously collaborated with Jim Morrison, Michael began working with The Doors keyboardist Ray Manzarek in the late 1980s. Part of his ongoing return to the bardic tradition of performance and what he calls a common tribal dancing ground, whether we were poets or painters or sculptors. He has continued to innovate through collections of essays, novels, and 16 or more books of poetry, which feature extended haikus, um, lyrics, and his non-semantic beast language, an ecstatic poetry of what he calls muscular principle, and a revolution for the body, spirit, and intellect, and ear of pure beauty and energy that does not mimic but joins and exhorts reality and states the daily higher vision. A measure of his ability to extend beyond beat limits is acknowledgement of his work by Francis Crick, co-discoverer of the structure of DNA and explorer of the scientific basis of consciousness. Now to hear Michael read his poetry, characteristically arranged as a spine down the center of the page, remains an exalting, if not sacred, experience. For he's a maker of forms which take their place inside the cosmic order to become organisms in their own right. In the face of the deadening academic enterprise, Michael McClure shows us that the end of the poem has always been more than merely literary. Please join me in giving him a warm welcome. Uh, I just want to add one thing to what Michael said in his introduction, which is a quote I've been using a lot lately. Uh, it's by Friedrich Schlegel, the nature philosopher, contemporary of Goethe's. All art, this is by Friedrich Schlegel from about 1830, all art should become science and all science art. Poetry and philosophy should be made one. Now, at that first poetry reading that you just heard about that I gave in 19, September 7th, 1955, uh, when Allen Ginsberg read Howell for the first time, and I met Gary Snyder for the first time. Uh, this was probably the first poem I read that evening, called The Mystery of the Hunt. It's the mystery of the hunt that intrigues me, that drives us like lemmings, but cautiously the search for a bright square cloud, or the scent of lemon verbena, or to learn rules for the games the sea otters play in the surf. It is these small things and the secret behind them that fill the heart, the pattern, the spirit, the fiery demon, that link them together and pull their freedom into our senses. The smell of a shrub, a cloud, the action of animals, the rising, the exuberance when the mystery is unveiled. It is these small things that when brought into vision become an inferno. And then the poem that I remember reading that evening that Michael spoke of is for the death of 100 whales. And it begins with a quote from Time Magazine, April 1954. Killer whales, savage sea cannibals, up to 30 feet long with teeth like bayonets. One was caught with 14 seals and 13 porpoises in its belly, often tear at boats and nets, destroyed thousands of dollars worth of fishing tackle. 
Icelandic government appealed to the U.S., which has thousands of men stationed at a lonely NATO airbase on the subarctic island. Seventy-nine bored GIs responded with enthusiasm. Armed with rifles and machine guns, one posse of Americans climbed into four small boats and in one morning wiped out a pack of 100 killers. First, the killers were rounded up in a tight formation with concentrated machine gun fire, then moved out again one by one for the final blast which would kill them. As one was wounded, the others would set upon it and tear it to pieces with their jagged teeth. Time Magazine. Hung mid-sea, <clears throat> mid like a boat mid-air, the liners boiled their pastures, the liners of flesh, the arctic steamers, brains the size of a teacup, mouths the size of a door, the sleek wolves, mowers and reapers of sea kine, the giant tadpoles meet their algae leapt like sheep or children, shot from the sea's bore, turned and twisted, goya, flung blood and sperm, incense, gnashed at their tails and brothers, cursed Christ of mammals, snapped at the sun, ran for the sea's floor. Goya, Goya, O D H Lawrence, no angels dance those bridges. O gun, O bow, there are no churches in the waves, no holiness, no passages or crossings from the beast's wet shore. In 1962, I wrote a book of 99 poems in what I call beast language in English. And I'd been studying Kundalini yoga and I'd been traveling to Mexico with a naturalist friend of mine to bring back cultures of the sacred mushroom. And these poems were written in people's front rooms and airplanes and airports and my bedroom and every place I was when I was writing them. This one, however, was written on August, it's dated, as most of them are not, dated August 6, 1962. So you'll hear in this the English, and you'll hear it turn into beast language as it goes. And this is uh, the day, this is written the day after Marilyn Monroe died. Marilyn Monroe, today thou hast passed the dark barrier, diving in a swirl of golden hair, I hope you have entered a sacred paradise for full warm bodies, full lips, full hips, and laughing eyes. Ah, grur, roar, know that, oh, ooh. Farewell, perfect mammal, fare thee well from thy silken couch and dark day. Ah, Rururu Garna Uthis, farewell, Moor Drun, Fara Rahur, 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 the Ah, oh, Dar, Na, U, Gru, Rar. Thank you. And this was written a few days later. I love to think of the red-purple rose in the darkness cooled by the night. We are served by machines making satins of sounds, 
Each blot of sound is a bud or a star. Body eats bouquets of the ear's vista. Gar, booty, ears, nose, eyes, deem thou. <coughs> no, na o, hrur, vurna, garu me. <coughs> na dru sirch, na thee. The machines are too dull when we are lion poems that move and breathe. When we grew, Andri Maktat Sharu Sridano deemed as one Itu's Ro. When the, my play The Beard, which was had a spotted, checkered past, uh, by the time it got here, uh, it had been arrested by the police in Los Angeles, I guess 14 times, by the police in San Francisco once, by the police in Berkeley once, by the police in Vancouver once, and I even heard that it was busted in Boston, although I didn't have anything to do with that. Uh, and we were successfully uh, protected by the uh, American Civil Liberties Union, and each time we began the play again. And then the play went to New York and it had two OBs, which two off-Broadway awards, Best Actress and Best Director. Uh, and then, but it was still, well, I was a little bit afraid it was going to replace the importance of being earnest in the high school curriculum, but uh, not really. It was still had suffering from quite a scandalous reputation. It's nothing but a dialogue between Gene Harlow and Billy the Kid. Uh, uh, but it was when it came to uh, London and played at the Royal Court that I really felt absolutely liberated uh, from all the lawsuits and cases and jury cases that the play had been through because it was received wonderfully here. I think it had the best reception that I've ever seen a play have anywhere. And it got very fine reviews. And then a strange thing happened. I was compared to Eliot and to Yeats, which is always what I'd been thinking. I wasn't really, I wasn't thinking of Behind the Green Door by the Mitchell Brothers or something. Uh, anyway, the play is between Harlow and Billy the Kid, and they both wear small beards of torn white tissue tape. Whew! Little jet lag. Between Harlow and Billy the Kid, Gene Harlow and Billy the Kid, they both wear small beards of torn white tissue paper. Harlow's hair is in her traditional style. She wears a pale blue gown with plume sleeves. Billy the Kid wears shirt, tight pants, and boots. Harlow has a purse. The set contains two chairs and a table covered with furs, and an orange light snaps on and Harlow and Kid at the table. Can you hear me okay? Harlow. Before you can pry any secrets from me, you must first find the real me. Which one will you pursue? Kid, what makes you think I want to prize secrets from you? Harlow, because I'm so beautiful. The kid, so what? Harlow, you want to be as beautiful as I am. The kid, oh yeah. Harlow, before you can pry any secrets from me, you must first find the real me. Which one will you pursue? The kid, what makes you think I want to prize secrets from you? Harlow. Because I'm so beautiful. The kid, so what? Harlow, you want to be as beautiful as I am. 
the kid. And he grabs her arm. Oh, yeah? I've got you. Harlow. It's an illusion. The kid's squeezing her arm and raising it. You mean this meat isn't you? Harlow. What do you think? The kid. What makes you think you're so beautiful? Harlow. Oh, my thighs. My voice. The kid. What about your hair? Harlow. What do you think? The kid. Your hair came out of a bottle. Harlow. You're full of shit. My hair is beautiful and it didn't come out of any bottle that's like this. The kid. Show me your baby pictures. Harlow. You're crazy. Why? The kid. To see your hair. Harlow. You are jealous. The kid. You're full of shit. Harlow. It's blonde. Don't worry. You've got buck teeth. The kid. Shut up. Harlow. Maybe you'd like to be beautiful. Maybe you'd even like to be pretty. You wear your hair down to your shoulders. Maybe you'd like to be a chick. Kid takes care of her arm. Takes hold of her arm, moves it in his fingers. This is nothing but meat. Harlow. Before you can pry any secrets from me, you must first find the real me. The kid. What makes you think I want to pry secrets from you? Harlow. Because I'm so beautiful. The kid. So what? Harlow. You want to be as beautiful as I am. Kid, oh yeah, this is nothing but meat. He squeezes her arm. Why should I want to be beautiful? Harlow, oh, you're a man. The kid, yeah? Harlow, you're a man, and men want to be beautiful. The kid, I'm sick of that word. It makes me want to puke. You're a bag of meat. Harlow, what word? Beautiful. I'm sick of hearing that word coming from a bag of meat. Harlow, don't touch my arm again kid or Harlow I'll cut your dumb brain open like a bag of meat don't you think I'm lovely the kid you smell like myrrh come and sit on my lap Harlow what if somebody came in and looked the kid in eternity there's nobody here Harlow you said I'm a bag of meat and you said shit about my hair the kid maybe I love you Harlow, you're full of shit. Who can love an eternity? The kid, sit on my lap. Harlow, you're a million miles away, sweet. The kid, not an eternity. Sit on my lap. Harlow, fuck you. The kid, you're a bag of meat, a white sack of soft skin and fat held in shape by a lot of bones. Harlow, pulling dress up thigh. So, the kid, I think your hair is blonde. Harlow, really blonde? The kid, yes. Harlow, you're a sack of shit. And it does go on from there. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> I thought it was a nature poem until they started busting it. I thought it was like a conversation between a couple of panthers or something, arguing over the laundry tickets. Um... Somewhere along the line after that, I, I became concerned about the fact that we weren't going to remember the 60s. Because they say if you were there, you can't remember them. Maybe I just wanted to prove I can remember them. So this is called Acid Memento One. And it starts with a line by Shelley from his great sonnet. Lift not the painted veil, 
which those who live call life, says Shelley. But I have been where the psychedelics sing, making madrigals with lumpen bodies of monsters growing into the landscape. The colors of angels and the real patterns of Dr. Strange slipped through the filter of consciousness. All of this was done for consciousness. Never has so much been stirred by so few molecules. So I lay back watching the packs of giant white wolves and cathedrals flying through the minds of eagles. I knew intensely and secretly the waves that were crashing the shores of the coal bin in the mine's basement as dark eyes closed in an ecstasy of timelessness. Well, that might not be enough to do it, so I wrote another one. Acid Memento too, and I want to say Free Will and Frank was uh, who? I first met Free Will and Frank when he was uh, secretary of the San Francisco chapter of the Hell's Angels, and uh, we were sitting on the front row at a Bob Dylan concert, and uh, Frank and I became very close. I ended up writing his autobiography, and it is an autobiography. I typed it while he said it, and uh, we became brothers. This is while he's still in the angels. With free acid memento too. With free wheel and frank in the bright sun on the overstuffed couch, we pass back and forth the red gold powder in the tiny toy pirate chest. Taking only a flitter of pigment on the tongue the room expands in a slow, warm blast of Hell's Angels posters and leather and velvet and swastikas and storms of Joan Baez. Then a few more tastes of the powder, bitter as Kool-Aid, bitter as Kool-Aid. I flash in the body of a hummingbird through the smell of sagebrush on the high plateau of the Andes, lofty as Faust, over an infinite spoil, oil spell of the future, where a million species die in the desert of greasy car wrecks. And somehow, as Frank and I wrote his autobiography, and we played music together with other friends in the evening, um, he sort of outgrew the Hells Angels. So he, it's pretty hard to get out once you're in. They, they don't like you to leave. Uh, but after, uh, after a while, and various efforts of persuasion from various parties, Frank was allowed out of the Hells Angels if he blocked in his tattoo. And he had a beautiful tattoo. It was a uh, death's head skull with wings on it. Quite a large tattoo. And they said, well, the last thing you've got to do on getting out is take that tattoo of yours, go down and have it blacked out. So the final tattoo is really in a beautiful, big, big black wing shape. And I wrote this poem, Free Whelan's Tattoo. Frank, how pleased I am to see that death's head tattoo of red and blue blocked in with solid black. How good to view the sign of madcap finality filled up with darkness to make a wing shape forever flying on your arm. It is your new charm or token, and it shows that spirit cannot be broken, but ever grows toward flight.
matter of fact, I think my con favorite contemporary poem is by Diane de Prima. It's called Rant, and it begins, the only war that matters is the war against the imagination. And here's my poem beginning with a line by de Prima. The only war that matters is the war against the imagination. The only love that shatters is the love of despondence and horror. The only honor that shines is the one that smashes the lust for duty. Any crime that diminishes the soul is not credible, such as the foulness of stuffing one's gut with the junk of greasy meat and consumerist propaganda, of filling one's nose and veins and with drugs, of cutting beaks from chickens and then loading them with poisons and light and madness and eating their eggs and spirits. Body and spirit are all one thing. It is just one war. And the big bomb has already exploded. There's time to look your love in the eyes and say, no more. In my insides, I am a man or woman. I am heart and lung and meat and vein and breath going back through a deep phylogeny. I am a deep old history made new for the first time in the smiling guise of the universe that whispers with my breathed air and my soft toes. Why then am I handed this garbage, these lies that are told over and over, that grow tighter and tighter and prey on my health? Why am I diminished and portrayed as a fool and told to buy and consume till I am only a fool? How come I am a tool of this explosion, a tool of tools in the midst of this slow motion blow up? Stand up, get off your back and turn off the box with the moving pictures. Go for a walk in the woods or on the plains. Speak to a cliff. The only war that matters is the war against the imagination. The only honor that shines is the one that smashes the lust for duty. It is your duty to absorb the social propaganda and become crazed with the need for overpopulation and to stimulate the greed to devour what has been out there for a billion years and burn petroleum in endless and countless flames in the ceremonial vehicles and the machines that change the climate. It is duty to torment the innocent and the less privileged and to finger and torture and tease right out of their homes and lives a million species of brother and sister beings. It is duty to dissolve any signs of an inner life that is different in any way from the outer lies of consumerist propaganda. It is duty to be of only one dimension so that the inside soul is no different from the commercial for tennis shoes. The finances of rock and roll sings anthems of cheap beer straight into your ears as you shove your green paper over the counter to trade for burgers that are fried in the tallow of cows grazed where once there were forests in the Amazon. The only war that matters is the war against the imagination. Hey, thank you. Um, when I was when I was learning to, not that long ago either. When I was learning to practice, do Zen practice, which means 
sitting with your legs crossed and your hands in an oval mudra. I wrote a book of 99 poems that are kind of like, somebody said it's like a home video, the experience of learning to sit, which I thought was a really kind of wonderful way to put it. Uh, the oval mudra of the hands is my breath holding a jewel. It is all carved where I sit. Pictures of saints painted on moving air. Bald heads and calm wild eyes say no to dualism, to me and to something else. I was wrong. It is not even one thing. Bow to the night sky, inside of everywhere, and the morning star that tastes like a fig. Bow to your blue eyes and soft toes. We might die, but we're being born. See where we are? Another of these Dharma devotions. The book is called Touching the Edge. Dharma Devotions from the Hummingbird Sangha. And I wrote this for, you might have seen or read a book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, by the great teacher uh, Shunryu Suzuki Roshi. And I wrote this because um, Suzuki Roshi, I know, often thought of himself as a frog. He liked the way they sat Zen, he said. They, they, they did it right. And I think he did it right. So this is for Suzuki Roshi. The white chin of the frog beats with his breathing. He's green and pinstriped and as plain as I am. We are naked and robed we are naked and robed in the ordinary storm and waiting for rain. Not too smart and not caring. We're wise apples. The full moon makes a place to stand with rained, raised arms. Next, I am brown gold and old and wooden, solid and near weightless, shaped like a Buddha, letting it go or flash back to a few drops of rain on the windshield. The white hands with long fingers hold an injured ego, touching its thorns, caressing the lids of its bloodshot eyes. Realms open and close in a tide pool, clear, cold, water streams from a vial, and every night is a new night. The thrum and glitter of the hummingbird comes from nowhere, and the doe steps awkwardly to look at the calico cat. Sunrise is nothing but pink, orange, abalone patterned scatterings of clouds. And this is the 99th in that series of 99 poems. touching the edge. Dark paths are the way to the light in the forest where the mountain gleams after rain and thunder. Self-knowledge flashes like sun in a downpour. 
A milligram is pure gold wrapped in actions and carried to the old boat. The rustlings of leaves in the yard are songs of clarity praising the changing forms. We are the touch of silk and taste of peaches and steamed beets. How solid and empty, how solid and empty is this dharma. These are haikus. They're from a section of poems called Haiku Edge in the Rain Mirror. There. Oh, accident. Oh, oh, I may have to do some of these twice. Like Robert Bly, I could do them four times. Oh, accident. Oh, accident. Oh, perfect, crushed snail. Like a star gone out. Oh, accident. Oh, perfect, crushed snail. Like a star gone out. Oh, consciousness, no. Hey, 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 it's all consciousness. Thumps of assault rifles and the stars. Where I am up in the hills above Oakland now, my wife, we sometimes hear assault rifles down in the lowlands. And we can see the stars. Hey, it's all consciousness. Thumps of assault rifles and the stars. What I'm doing now is reading some poems from Haiku Edge. The big yellow leaf spins through the silver downpour. Smacks my windshield. Now this one, just be glad you're not getting a test on this one. This is a tough one. Pink Band-Aid stuck to the asphalt looks gray in moonlight while crickets sing. Pink Band-Aid stuck to the asphalt looks gray in moonlight while crickets sing. This one nobody can get because this one has to do with uh, it has to do with synesthesia, I suppose. The crossing of sense modalities. Mold, moldy board smell. Ah, my grandpa's face appears in the air. I hear troubled breathing out there. Oh, hummingbird shadow on the black plum. No summer lightning, though. Oh, hummingbird shadow on the black plum. No summer lightning, though. Hey, driver, your big, soft, steel, rubber-smelling car owns you. (laughs) 
Two more haikus. The Milky Way is just another, oh no, excuse me. The Milky Way is another shiny cricket chirping while leaves fall. The Milky Way is another shiny cricket chirping while leaves fall. The universe of stars is just another baby cricket chirping. You'll be sorry you missed that one. <laughs> Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Those go very well with Ray Manzarek's music. We've got them on, on a CD, a uh, whole long series of those haikus my reading them and Ray playing them. Most beautiful piano. Uh, Spanish roses. We come from nowhere, and it's nowhere where we go. There's not even blackness where we go. No silver light or sparkling snow. No smell of Spanish roses. No night upon the town. And when I stand up, I know I've fallen down. I'm on a cliff top. Don't send me a frown. Sometimes it's hard here. The mind makes wrinkles and a frown. You're my loving darling. I'll be a man here, not some goddamn clown. Sometimes I slip, but I'm not falling down. There's not even blackness where we go, but I'm a man here. I'm the man you know. We come from nowhere, and it's nowhere where we go. Maybe Mama Lion for Ray Manzarek. Oh, yeah. No. It's, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The wound. 
papered over, making paper tigers with a band-aid. Band-aids! Band-aids! Feeling so bad. Out of body in the blackness, solid silver blackness of forty billion years, in an agony of crazy, knowing nothing, looking for a self to hold a mind. Been there many times, been there many times. The sand underfoot is just a blackness to hold the blind. Coming back to voices, Cali, going back to Cali, back to Cali. I don't think so. Fornia, Fornia, not to the furnace, but to the wound. Many years covered over, still deep, still there. Tried to bandage it with long stem roses and with ferns. Lying on the beach watching chipmunks, watching chipmunks and bugs and odd patterns on the leaves, hurting my self-esteem. There's a bloody war outside that's whistling through the wound stretching out to someone in a dream. It's no dream stretching out to Mama Lion in a dream. So bad, feeling so bad. All my friends have left me and were eating rich food, rich food with the sound of silver clinking on the finest plates in Cali. Going back to Cali, Callie, we're eating you in a dream. You're a salmon, California salmon, coming back to rivers, flowing from ahead on a cliff where folks look down on, the top of eagle's wings. It's a good life. It's a good life. It's a good life. Out of body, out of mind, while the rainforests are coming down. It's a good life while the rainforests are coming down. Hear the crashing sound. It's deep inside. Your life swinging around your body. Does Mama Lion love you? Does Mama Lion love you? Does Mama Lion love you? Can the salmon drown? And the last poem I've been writing is not finished, so I, I couldn't bring it. it. It probably is finished, but I was writing a poem for Francis Crick, and I'd been writing it for several weeks. And uh, I, was sit I was sitting near Redwood Park, uh, where I sit to write this poem. and. I got to a point and I said, that could be the end of the poem. I just, and I've got about ten more lines there that would make a nice coda for the ending. I'll have to think about whether this is, uh, can you hear me okay? I said, I'll have to think about whether this is done or not. And I went home and turned on my computer and looked at the email and a friend of mine had sent me an email telling me about Francis Crick dying. So I knew the poem was finished.
I plan on I plan on taking that poem down and to San Diego and reading it to Francis uh, before coming to this trip to England. But I was a little behind schedule. Sorry to say. So I'll take it down and read it to his wife, Odile. Uh, this is the from a group of poems I was writing immediately before that called Mysteriosos, the two small sections of poems, Mysteriosos and Cameos. And what I started reading you is the epigraph. I mean, the first thing I read you this evening is the epigraph for Mysterioso. You know, Mysterioso is a beautiful composition by Thelonious Monk. If you if you don't, you should know that. It's like it's just it's spectacularly beautiful piece of jazz from about 1951 or two, bebop I guess, late bebop. Uh, and it, this is the epigraph, and in the epigraph is by Friedrich Schlegel. I read it earlier. All art should become science, and all science art, poetry and philosophy should be made one. It's kind of like the, that could be the, the leitmotif of the nature philosophers of the early 19th century. And it's what I grew up believing. My first book of prose was called Meet Science Essays, and that's what I thought I was doing. I thought I was making art and science one with poetry. and, and trying to link them up with inspiration and imagination. Mysterioso. Lovely. Lovely and ancient and foxed with rusty brown spots as the oldest immortal princess or the bodhisattva kanan as a simpering and infinitely generous old whore. How surprised we are at what passes in past and future for the scent of apples. I must know more about the skin and muscles and the wall of stars two billion light years long. It is all quick. So the Bodhisattva Kanan is the Bodhisattva of hearing problems, of hearing of pains and of mercy. Goddess, the Bodhisattva of Mercy. She's been painted sometimes as an infinitely generous old whore. Mysterioso. Hunger. Hungry. Huge. Cavernous hole. Holding torn beings in transition. Lives devouring the path into light of blackness inside of a cricket. A big shining face with eyes filling the room roaming without movement, searching for food, rising around. Hormones, fats, and proteins wearing emerald genomes in a boiling sea vent. There's a cloud leopard with a baby's face. Hormones. Hormones with lion faces, even with whiskers. Maned hormones grinning and swimming as they swim in deltoid shoulder muscles, as our arms beat on the high warm waves. Venus meets soup on a wheel, spinning, splashing out walkers, singers, flyers, tiny eaters. Innocence is driven by lion faces, 
dreams being flesh in a universe of wings, realms of glorious sound. Disappeared in the Miami Herald. God knows what they thought of it. Miami is a pretty terrific town, pretty literary, but I don't think this was right for the Miami Herald newspaper. I said, tried it on my friend who was editing the piece. He said, yeah, that's the one. So, Mysterioso 8. Black, arisen to black roses, is voices between petals. The yellow centers with anthers begin with black, lonely, sweet as honey, overpopulated by blossoms and petals. Consciousness narrowly streams like a nematode, muscularly between plastics and hunks of manufactured thought, through births of new hatreds, poisonous as ever, greedy for ignorance as a sitcom. And we stretch in this bed, touching shoulders, just as whales and mice do. This is from Plumstone's Cartoons of No Heaven. Another uh, Hua Yen investigation. Hua Yen is the sister of Zen. It's the fi if Zen is the practice, Hua Yen is the physics. Let's see, I told you what a mudra is. You know what a mudra is anyway. And then when I say making a monkey, in practice, uh, I often fall, and I think most people who practice it, into what's called monkey mind. You can imagine what that is when you're clearing your mind and it doesn't clear exactly the way you're expecting. You find a lot of monkeys in there talking, or you're a monkey talking. And skandhas are the... Um, Zen vision of, of sensory conception. So here's Plumstone's one. Coming. Coming in big ones. Coming together. Listening to big ones. Lighter than feathers. I'm going to start over here. I used to love it when Charles Olson started over again. He'd have to get the right level of energy up. I guess you know who Charles Olson is. He'd say, what does not change is the... Oh. <laughs> Got to figure he's like a little over seven feet tall and weighs around 300 and something pounds. What does not change... No. What does not... Oh. What does not change is the will to change. That's it. We'll go from there. <clears throat> Coming, coming in big ones, coming together, listening to big ones, lighter than feathers. Nothing is there, joining into bundles, lying on lion chairs, straight back and rising from pelvis, hands in a mudra, 
making a monkey. Too much is all about nothing. Almost a car growl in a splatter of rain. Nearly a laugh, being a pain. Scatter of skandhas, imagining a whale ship. Coming in big ones, even Dada failed. Nasturtium shadows, buried in graves on snow-capped mountains, knowing where everything grows by rubbing together. All is one, carved into zero. Making a monkey, listening to big ones. Wet roots of wildflowers coming together. Continuous practice. Scatter of skandhas coming together in eyes and ears of the traffic. Caught in one roar, a monkey with crossed legs and lifting from pelvis. Thoughts in the hands make one big zero. Big is the size of a never-born hero. Bits of electrons and scent of rain-wet violets. Thoughts in the hands make one big zero. Thank you. <clears throat> the last poem, short song. I work with the shape of spirit, moving the matter in my hands. I mold it from the inner matrix. Even a crow or fox understands. Okay, Michael's going to take some questions. Is that right? Uh, if, if you have any. Okay, cool. I haven't answered them all in those poems. Right, gentlemen. I'm interested in. Um, that you belong to this romantic tradition in a, in a way um, and I'm interested in this relationship that you have between the romantic vista that spreads out and and this um, this short form that you've employed the short what? the short form that your work um, consists of so the, the, the words themselves are, are very compact on the page um, and my interest in, in this stems from um, the work of Antoinette Artaud in the way that his work, um, his, his mutilated corpus, where, where um, he, was, he struggled for his thoughts to, to eventuate and what was left was a series of fragments. Um, it seems to me that you have... That you have um, Managed to to take these two quite different relationships, like the Whitmanesque um, expanse and and the that tight haiku. I'm just yeah. Could you comment? On I that? thought that uh, Antonin Artaud was my elder brother, and he had died uh, uh, seven years before I knew about him. And I spent a long time. I spent a lot of my energy running around San Francisco, running down, and I didn't read French running down everybody who uh, had, had any translations of Artaud and began reading Artaud, uh, well, before even this, this first poetry reading of mine. 
uh, and I fortunately ran into some really great translations and hung around people who'd known Arto. Uh, uh, and uh, he, Arto is one of my saints, as is Shelley. I'm not really known for the short form. Some people know me as one of those people who sort of sprawl all over the place in long poems, which uh, are, are not Shelleyan, but uh, are, are, are long. Uh, I, they're, they're not the kind of thing that you can read at a, at a reading. You sort of have to sit down to the book. Did, am I answering your question? Or was you asked something about the romantics. So Shelley is a hero, Antonin Artaud is a hero, and Blake is the greatest hero of all. And my most recent, and, and D.H. Lawrence, and uh, I'm not talking about my contemporaries, I've just gone listing them forever. And another one is Dogen, the 14th century uh, founder of Soto Zen. I, I guess my question is um, how you join those two elements together. Of, of can, I, can I read you a poem? Maybe this will help. Because this was a, uh, one of the, this is uh, probably the second, I've read this poem also at that first poetry reading you heard about. It is possible, my friend, if I have had a fat belly, that the wolf lives on fat, gnawing slowly through a visceral night of rancor. It is possible that the absence of pain may be so great that the possibility of care may be impossible, perhaps to no miracles. This talk of bodies. Oh, I can't remember it from there, but that's... Uh, starts with a line by Antonin Artaud and was written sitting in uh, Point Lobos, the great, uh, which one of the most beautiful places in the world, in Whaler's Cove at Point Lobos, in uh, not far south of Carmel in Big Sur, and think, meditating on Artaud. Hello, Michael. Hi. Um, you were in the film The Hired Hand, is that right? Yeah, Hired right. Hand. Directed um, by I Peter love Fonda. that film. In fact, to me, I, mean, I love the film. It's a beautiful script. It's a beautiful film, and uh, more so than Easy Rider, which I thought was a great film anyway. Yeah. That was a lovely film. W what's your thoughts, memories of appearing in that? In Hired Hand? In The Hired Hand. Oh, feeling like a, a, not being an actor, uh, although I have been in a few films since, but uh, and not knowing how Peter, directed, Peter Fonda directed, I felt like I was standing on a leaf in the middle of a lake. The film, the film was like that. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a very, very tremulous, so, yeah. a very tremulous film, yeah, it's and it's not film. much like the original script. Peter did a lot of work with it to bring Alan, it to that Alan shape. Sharp, wasn't it the original? Yeah. Great. Yes, Alan Sharp. That's right. He's yeah. Genius. I don't know any is other English, scripts by him. He's a Scotsman, I think. Oh, a Scotsman, right? Okay. Anyway, lovely film. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, your friendship with uh, Francis Crick obviously deep. I wonder, do you feel as many do now that the immortality about to be conferred upon us, the physical and not literary immortality about to be conferred upon us by our new priest king, the genetic scientist, is doomed because of our species immaturity or do you feel, <laughs> or perhaps do you feel as some do that we are going through some kind of transition of collective psyche which is going to see us through the threat of transformation well I, I like the possibility you suggest <coughs> but uh, not and I like the possibility you suggest I don't know about it uh, and I 
have been reading a lot of Marcuse again lately. Has anybody lately read Herbert Marcuse, who wrote One Dimensional Man? Duh. Well, everybody read it in the 60s. It was, uh, it was very profoundly on our mind, and I thought he's the one who invented the term one-dimensionality, meaning the inside world is no different from the outer world. It's the same as consumerist propaganda. And I thought a few years ago that we, France, um, Herbert Marcuse was no longer of much value to me personally because looking back, he had given such a perfect critique of the way the world was in the 60s and we'd gotten so much powerfully stranger since then, to be pleasant about it, that Marcuse was not so much value. This is M-A-R-C-U-S-E. And I looked on my shelf and, wow, there was a book of Herbert Marcuse's I'd never finished reading. I'd only read two pages in it, published in 1970 or something. And I started reading it again. It's called An Essay on, An Essay on Liberation. And it's about, it's more, it follows up One Dimensional Man and it's about liberation. And he's speaking about uh, a liberation that is possible in the kind of society we have today if we have the revolutionary individuals within it to make it possible. The other thing that I think of in, in response to your suggestion and question is that I often think of what uh, uh, Alfred, North uh, yeah, Alfred North Whitehead said. He said, uh, it is the business of the future to be dangerous, and it's doing a damn good job. Hi, Michael. Hi. Uh, you're a poet that's always struck me that's worked very, very well with musicians. Yeah. You have a rapport with them, uh, and they have a rapport with you, obviously. Uh, could you comment on how you got into that initially and how it enriches your poetry? Say, you mentioned earlier about the influence of Blake and the oral tradition, how perhaps yourself and Allen Ginsberg and even William Burroughs in later years um, more or less had a conjugal relationship with rock music. Allen Ginsberg and I were hanging out with Bob Dylan after that. I told you about seeing Free Will and Frank at that concert. Well, we met Dylan after the concert, or maybe Alan knew him before, I forget. And we spent a lot of time with Dylan. And uh, Dylan gave Alan a beautiful uh, voice recorder, and he asked me if I played an instrument. He said, you ought to write music for your poems, uh, or, or do them with music. And I, and I said, I don't play an instrument. And he gave me an auto harp. He said, oh, he said, what instrument would you play? And I said, well, an auto harp. I didn't know what an auto harp looked like. It occurred to me those rock stars are making a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> and they were very smart. I think, you know, I think of uh, Dylan and, and John Lennon as being very smart and driving around in good black cars, you know. So, but uh, I don't sing very well. When I tried singing and was writing a lot of songs, even my best friends asked me not to sing. Uh, so the best thing that's happened is uh, working with Ray Manzarek, where I'm really speaking the poems. Uh, but it's a lot more than that. And it's not poetry and jazz, which was pretty much of a dud. It was good for what it was. Uh, I never did it. Uh, people who did it good were people like Kenneth Patchen uh, and David Meltzer. And um, no, that was leading somewhere. Wait. Oh, and I'm working now a lot with Terry Riley, a great, great composer. And we are 
uh, we are sending a CD off on the 9th of this month to the factory to be, to be made into a CD. I have two CDs out with Ray. And we're planning another one with Terry. I don't know if you know who Terry is, but he's the great contemporary experimental. It's not experimental anymore. You go in the record stores, and here's my old friend Terry, and he's got a tab there with his name on it, like Shostakovich or something. Shostakovich, Riley, Beethoven. It's wonderful. That gives me a kick. Did I answer your question? <laughs> but I've had a lot of music teachers. One was an electronic composer named George Montana who uh, played auto harp with me and Free Will and Frank played harmonica. And then another one was Chris Gaynor, a very far out contemporary classical composer. And we started what's called a, a poet's band. Just learned to play gagaku rhythms. Korean chord rhythms. This is from our forthcoming CD. So we'll just make this the last question, yeah. if that's okay. Yes, the name of this CD when it comes out will be um, I Like Your Eyes, Liberty. Liberty. And uh, it'll be absolutely undistributed. Well, it'll be on Terry's website. And I'm going to... Okay, well, that track, yes. Yeah. It's a 60-minute CD. In the thy lips and hair our stunning field grew on the green black trees are tall and brooding in the dark gray pink wet mist of night all is flashes of silver Upon damp black by schooled in the air. Thee, 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 mock floors for Physicality is poesy to demanding flesh. Ring-tailed cat, close Arcturus, heavenly visions of gentle rats with pink noses. purple rose in the darkness cooled by the night we are served by machines making satins of sounds each blot of sound is a bud or a star body eats bouquets of the ear's vista Ears. No 
linda The machines are too dull when we are lion poems that move and breathe when we grow. Andri, Mike Tuff, Sharu, Sridano, deemed as one ethos row. Violets 
thoughts in the hand make one big zero. Slayer arrives. Blue silver waves crash loud. Water lashes and swirls. The same story rolls over and over, giving meat to another body. Compassion, O oh wise one. For these scattering skulls and crude jagged stones yes, we'll stop. and the unending memories. I didn't mean to sit, have you sitting there listening to uh, uh, I thought there would be more ghost hunting. Boy, do you make me feel good. I feel so good. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 